You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson here with Rob Nahoopi for Episode 9. Hey, Rob, how's it going? Greg, it is going well. Super excited for this episode. We have another guest coming from one of our um, one of the covered entities out there going through TPA transition. So excited to learn more about that. I know many of us have gone through those, and they are not the most fun thing in 340B. So good to pick up a few, point, uh, pick up a few pointers and, and learn what um, our guest has to say. Yeah, great, great topic today. I know a lot of folks out there, you know, are think of it as such a daunting task to make a transition to a new TPA, or maybe you're converting your EHR, and that requires a new TPA build. Um, so we'll get get some great insights from somebody that's actually gone through that uh, quickly. Um, happy Thanksgiving, happy belated Thanksgiving. How was your Thanksgiving holiday? It, it was great. It was great. Glad to be back. Um, starting up or well, finishing up. Um, uh, the rest of November and getting ready for end of year. We got all of December to get through. We got some couple exciting things coming up. I guess um, just as a reminder for everyone, um, you know, one of our, in fact, one of our uh, team members, Chelsea Violets, um, on the TPA transition um, episode, we're about to share here in a minute. And uh, she, she plus myself, Jake Thompson, Curtis McIntyre will be at ASHP mid-year clinical meeting here next week. So if you're going to be there, please stop by our booth, say hi. Um, if uh, any interest in, in any of our services, come talk to us. Love, love to share and see how we can help your covered entity. So um, we're booth 855 um, if you're down to ASHB. Excellent. And I, I should, we should say that you know, this is going to be Chelsea Violet's uh, second time on the podcast, and she seems to catch all the, the holiday episodes. She was on our <laughs> Halloween episode. We don't need to explain how she was on. Folks that listened to the episode probably heard her. So. You know, well, she well was the best part of the Halloween episode, but yeah, we'll let people guess uh, what part that was. Yeah. All right. Before we take a quick break here, news and noteworthy items in the in the 340B space. Anything going on? It's been kind of a slow couple of weeks. Yeah, we we touched on the Medicare uh, clarifications. We're still waiting to hear how um, some of the the regional Macs are going to be dealing with the rest of 2022 payback. So. So yeah. nothing new there. Um, biggest one is, you know, we had three of those appeal cases regarding the manufacturers and HRSA um, sort of report out. Um, two of those were kind of more on the, on the line of um, more favorable towards manufacturers. And again, I'll say it, it's, it's one of those things where it's, it, it, they're kind of going either way, a little bit HRSA, a little bit manufacturer. I think it's going to be split in the end, which means it's going to have to go to the Supreme Court um, for a decision. And um and, you know, I think uh, talking to Chelsea about this earlier, one point she made was that one thing that the manufacturer is saying is that, well, the ESP program only takes, you know, 10-ish minutes to upload data. And gosh, we've already done, um, I've done quite a few educations with clients and health systems on this, but it, it's not just uploading the data, right? It's it's how to manage the pricing coming back. I mean, the ESP program is extremely time-consuming. I think we'll probably have another podcast about this because it's such a hot topic, but I know, Greg, anything you're seeing and hearing from your clients as well regarding ESP and not taking just 10 minutes? No, it's it's labor intensive, uh, really difficult to organize all the data that you need to upload. Lots of different nuances. You know, not all the manufacturers are asking for the same parameters, the same, you you know, um, 
limitations in uh, replenishment at you know 30 days or 45 days. So, you know, I think to state that it's a, a 10 minute process really um, is, you know, a complete underestimation of what the true resource uh, commitment is to, to actually uploading the data. So, you know, if you, you've had, you know, limitations or restrictions to access to 340B price drugs through your contract pharmacy channels, and you're going to be communicating that to OPA, we want to make sure that we, uh, you know, underscore the, the, the degree to which you have to spend time uploading data just to restore that pricing, if in fact you can even get it restored. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yeah. I know um, we we're going to have um, our, our guest, um, Anna, um, introduce herself um, on, on the actual episode. Uh, should we do a little intro for Chelsea Violet? Yeah, tell us about Chelsea Violet. Uh, first of all, I now, I now have the opportunity to work with Chelsea uh, for a number of years. Um, we affectionately refer to as Mags because when she first joined us, uh, her last name was McGee. And so, and of course, we had Chelsea Reeve. Uh, so we, we call her Mags. Of course, she's been married now. Um, uh, and now she's Chelsea Violet, um, but we many still call her Mag. So just in case everyone ever hears that, that's why. But Chelsea comes uh, from from a ton of experience. Um, you know, she spent some time actually um, with Apexis, I think, doing a rotation in her residency. Uh, so she did do um, administrative residency, uh, worked at the, the Cleveland Clinic, running their 340B program. So she's she's got both hospital and clinic experience. She was one of our most awesome auditors on the compliance side, um, but with her skill set and experience, we actually, um, she came over to our optimization side, is now one of our directors of optimization, um, but because of her compliance skill set, she also runs our um, staff augmentation service, which is a big, heavy service to run, still occasionally does some audits uh, for some key clients that she's been working with and continues to work with. So just really um, what we say, she's a jack of all trades for us. She can do so many things. Um, it's hard to, to give her up in certain areas and and really, um, just really an awesome team player. So love Chelsea. Excited to have yeah. her on the on the podcast today. She, yeah, I have a soft spot for her. She, she and I started within like a week of each other back in, you know, it was almost three years now. So I think of Chelsea as kind of like my work sibling based on us starting right <laughs> together. So love love working with her. Awesome. Awesome. Or I'm excited for the episode. And uh, yeah, I'd say let's get to it. Yeah, let's take a quick break. And on the other side, we'll have uh, Chelsea and Anna and we'll talk about TPA transitions. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by Spendman Pharmacy. Have you started using a referral capture solution to help maximize 340B program savings? Spendman Pharmacy delivers the industry's leading solution to help you identify existing and new referral capture opportunities. Our team manages and meets all HRSA expectations, so you'll never be at risk. Visit spendmen.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how a referral capture solution can help drive 340B savings for your organization. Hey, welcome back. I'm here with Rob and we've got Chelsea Violet from the Spendmen team and our guest uh, from one of the clients and covered entities that we work with, uh, Anna Bolochnik. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks, Greg. Quick, quick introduction. We love having uh, covered entities come on and talk a little bit about what they're seeing and experiencing in the field. Um, we've had a chance to work with you. I know you've worked closely with our colleague, Chelsea. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your, your background, and, and what your role is in the 340B world. Yeah, so um, I've worked with uh, Providence and Health and Services since early 2013. And um, I started off working in an ambulatory uh, care clinic in a clinical support role. Um, after that, um, while there, I obtained my pharmacy tech license and then transitioned into a managed care setting, working for state-managed Medicaid and Medicare insurance provider. 
And then after that, I worked in Providence for population health and then joined um, Providence Region 340B team in 2018. And so since then, um, I worked in the Oregon region supporting six hospitals. And then in uh, 2021, transitioned to the NorCal Providence region. And there, um, I'm currently supporting five hospitals. And so um, during my time there, I've had the privilege to participate in five HRSA audits um, and then EMR transitions and TPA transitions. Um, and I love the fact that you say you had the privilege to participate in those HRSA audits. I'm sure they didn't feel like a privilege at the time, would be my guess. They're all a learning experience, though, which is great. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a, a glass half full type of uh, outlook on the the HRSA audit experience. You know, you get the uh, the glass half empty experience uh, from a lot of folks uh, elsewhere. So, well, TPA transitions is the the topic of the day. I'm you know so you know happy that you're here to talk a little bit about your experience. You know, we we've had you know a number of clients go through this. Chelsea, Rob, I know back in the day when you guys were both working on the provider side, you've had to go through the the long arduous process of either installing a TPA from start or transitioning from one TPA to the next really complicated um, project uh, critical for both compliance but also uh, optimization of 340b program uh, participation so um, you know, I'm really happy that we've got Anna here to kind of share some some more real-time experience with the the transition that they've experienced I'm gonna start with a question for for either Robert or Chelsea the first one uh, first question we have really is around strategic planning and the decision-making process. So when you're working or when in the past, when you've worked with leadership to make a decision around moving away from a legacy TPA to a new vendor, what are the qualities that you're looking for in a vendor or the capabilities of the software that you're hoping to find for that new future state solution? Chelsea, I don't know, do you want to go first? Sure. Okay. So I think... I think one of the first things that you know that most organizations look at is obviously the the price tag on it and if that works within the current budget. But um, beyond that, looking at what types of 340B universes that TPA might support, um, if you're just dealing with with mixed use or just dealing with contract pharmacy, um, historically, you may have. Um, kind of more more simple or more focused needs as opposed to kind of a more robust program that can apply to different types of 340B universes. Also looking at if you have clean sites, if you're looking to have that data flow through to a TPA just for auditing um, and records purposes, uh, making sure that it's a TPA that um, can support that and provide that visibility to data for you. Um, I know that we looked at a lot of different types of reporting capabilities, um, what the end user accumulation detail visibility and ability to modify is um, worth some um, some programs. We saw um, the end user be able to actually make adjustments to accumulations versus having to, to go through um, a process to kind of request changes be made and those being more applicable depending on what the experience of your end user is. Um, so I know we looked at that quite a bit as well. Um, Rob, what what other elements had you guys considered when you'd gone through this process in the past? Yeah, no, I think some of the ones you mentioned are, are very important. So I'll try not to overlap too much. Um, 
but for sure, you know, one big thing for us was finding a vendor that did both um, mixed use universe as well, as well as retail slash contract pharmacy universe as well. Um, because it's nice to have one vendor if possible, right? Decrease the number number of total vendors that you have to use or TPAs you have to use for your 340B program. And looking at the cost on those side, I think what's critical is making sure you understand what 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 are you going to be charged for the mixed use accumulator, and then what is the billing process for your um, retail contract pharmacy side. And of course, in that space, you know, is there exclusivity agreements you have to watch out for that type of thing? And and if there is, are you comfortable with the billing process? The um, I, I agree 100% with the ability to um, to see accumulations, to have visibility there, to modify if you if you identify an error and need to reverse things in accumulation prior to prior to being acquired, uh, purchases occurring, right? So that means a 340B diversion has not occurred. It's just potentially available that you can fix those prior to purchases. I think that's extremely important. One that people um, I think should ask, you know, as some of these TPAs get bigger. Um, not all TPAs provide a dedicated account rep. And so based on your, your health system or your hospital size, or if, and if you're an FQHC or grantee using some of these TPA services, are you going to get a specific account rep? Or are you going to be submitting trouble tickets or you know tickets to some, the ether, as I call it, where you're just sending it, I got a problem, but you can't call anybody. So definitely identifying, are you going to get a dedicated account rep or not? Um, and then I think everything else that Chelsea mentioned is really, really important. Um, the other one is really um, understanding what their um, downtime is, right? Do they have downtime? How often yeah. has it occurred? I like to get uh, customer um, reviews, so other clients who are using them um, to, to see what they uh, like and don't like. Um, and I, as best I can, I actually try and find customers they have that they didn't recommend, right? Do I know other um, uh, health systems using their their software that they didn't put on their list for for people that were references, but that I know personally so that I can call them and get the, get the, the real scoop and not, not the hand-picked um, references that they're going to provide. Um, the final one that I think about is time to implementation, right? You're, um, and, and how they're going to support you through implementation process, because there's a lot of work that has to be done. And so I want to know what that time frame looks like. Is Can I line that up with my previous TPA for them terminating, coming off, and what that process is going to look like? So, so many questions going into it. Um, I know that was a lot uh, between what Chelsea and I put in, but um, but there are a lot of things to think about when you're considering a new TPA for sure. Yeah, those are great, great, uh, great thoughts. The downtime thing, I think, is, you know, very, you know, fresh in the minds of some clients that we worked with. We know uh, a few folks had to deal with extended downtime earlier in the year. And, you know, I think that's kind of an overlooked or maybe underappreciated need as far as kind of an, ensuring you've got a process to manage downtime. So, you know, what one thing that I've been suggesting to, to covered entities now that are going through this type of process is use the transition to a new TPA as a um, stepping stone to developing like a downtime policy and procedure really critical to have, you know, if, if you're going to have extended periods of downtime where you're, you know, not ordering off of accumulations, or you're not going to be seeing EDI interfaces, you know, with your invoices. It, it's really a great, uh, I think, inflection point to develop some some more robust policy and procedures around downtime. Great thought. What about alignment with other vendors? You know, are there any um, you know, is, is there any value in trying to align your split billing vendor with some of the other vendors that you're working with, whether it's a wholesaler or an EHR, any any tips or tricks or, you know, do, do we put a lot of stock into that type of alignment? 
I think that it really depends on the the organization's IS support and and what they're able to churn out because every interface is going to be a little bit different. Um, what data needs to be submitted and how it needs to be submitted. I think there's definitely um, efficiencies realized when you're using the same vendor for multiple aspects of your 340B program because you are already submitting elements that are needed for for multiple universes. Thinking of organizations that um, use the same TPA for both mixed use and retail settings, and they're already sending the eligible encounter data across, um, making sure that, that that's coming across appropriately for one universe also facilitates um, you know, quality quality of data and eligibility qualification for that other universe. I think the other piece along alignment, though, is also looking at organizations within larger health systems, because um, especially in the, the time and age of acquisitions, you end up with multiple hospitals or health systems within one larger health system, and there can be challenges when Um, you know, one 340B program doesn't operate similar to another one within the same organization and trying to apply the same rules and same logic when the TPAs don't necessarily operate in the same manner. So I think that comes into play for a lot of organizations as well. Yeah, those are great thoughts. All right, Anne, I've got a question for you. Um, This really has to do with prepping for you know, the implementation. I know you're really, you know, heavily involved in that. What what did you guys have to do to prep for migration of your data from the legacy system into the new system? What was that process like? Yeah, so um, one of the things that we tried to make a priority is we recognized that like working, working daily with your entity, we knew our weak areas and the areas of improvement. So one of the things that we tried to do was try to clean up as much as we could prior to that transition. And so we focus heavily on that. And that's something that I recommend to any entity who's going to do a transition. Try to clean up as much as you can so that you start fresh and that you don't um, bring any any of that, like, data that you don't want in there. And one of the things that with REMR that we use is one of our challenges is keeping our med list up to date. And um, one of the issues there is if you're billing and accumulating on NDCs that you're not purchasing, that's going to be increasing your wax spend and cause um, potential compliance issues. So that's what we uh, focused on trying to update. And um, I know that's an issue for many um, entities, especially with all the drug changes and drug shortages that our entities are encountering right now. Yeah, it's a, the, you know the the just the decision of whether or not to import legacy accumulation data into the new system, I think is a, is a big decision for, for covered entities to weigh. Chelsea, Rob, any thoughts around how you, how you approach that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough, right? I, I when so I've worked with quite a few covered entities that have done a TPA switch on their mixed use setting and bringing in data and not bringing in data. I honestly, it really depends on how bad, bad the data is. I hate to say it, but yeah. one thing we've learned over time is that a TPA a lot of TPAs, not just one, I won't single anybody out. I just think over time, slowly things get in there, right? Just, you know, it's like a house. You get little cracks here and there. You get um, some things start falling apart. You know, some things that are just very minor issues over the course of a day, a week, a month is fine, even one year. But after five years, 10 years, where we've been doing mixed use accumulation now for 10 plus years, 
after a long period of time, these cracks get bigger and bigger. And so the question is, how comfortable are you with the data you're importing over? Is Do you have confidence in it? Um, or And sometimes people like to say, we don't have any confidence. We got tons of accumulation here. There's some some negative accumulations. We don't understand why. Um, you know, all these things are occurring. Um, so we tell people, definitely take a look at it. If there's some non-compliance there, see if you can resolve that or deal with that. But otherwise, if the accumulations are high and you're like, you know what, these are just excessive and, and can't even pinpoint exactly what occurred when, sometimes, you know, what we call operation clean slate, just so you have a clean base going forward. And again, not ignore, ignoring any potential compliance risk before, but starting with clean slate. So at least you're starting with a new house, right? You're not just patching all the cracks and doing everything. That's my weird analogy for the day. Um, and I just came up with it on the fly. So if it doesn't work, I apologize, but I kind of like it. I'm going with the house analogy. <laughs> I like the house analogy. Not that this necessarily plays into the house analogy, but I think one of the other pieces that comes into the decision-making process around whether or not or how much or or what data to pull over from one system to the next is particularly if you're changing from one NDC mapping convention to another. Um, so some systems have a one-to-one system, a one-to-one mapping system, but there are also systems that are one-to-many. So one um, CDM can lead to many NDCs or many NDCs lead to one CDM. Uh, Or excuse me, I said the same thing twice. That's not that helpful. (laughs) Um, But many CDMs can lead to one NDC. That's what I was going for. Um, And if you're going from one of those systems to another one of those systems, um, or, or mapping conventions that can create a lot of challenges uh, yeah. in in converting the data over. What, what what are your thoughts on maybe you know a, a lot of hospitals and covered entities I've worked with that are going through this or have gone through this transition? You know, I think they like the 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 freeness of starting with a clean slate, but there's a lot of apprehension about whack exposure for the first few months where you're operating with without any accumulations. What about strategically analyzing or retrospectively auditing high dollar NDCs and importing credits for those products and then kind of taking a hybrid approach, uh, nuking the rest of the uh, the accumulations and, and really only importing, you know, high dollar accumulations that you've been able to validate. Any any credence to, to taking that approach? I've certainly seen that approach taken and I I don't see anything wrong with it, particularly because you you've had eligible administrations that generate those accumulations and support future purchases. I do think that you want to make sure that the the data integrity is there that you are auditing those and making sure that you do have faith in that data that you're bringing over and that those accumulations are supported. But I think that something that goes hand in hand with it is also looking at your negative accumulations if you have any and making sure that you're not um, kind of ignoring or disregarding potential areas of overpurchasing or diversion Um, that you're also addressing those elements if you are kind of looking to make a mostly clean slate transition um, so that you're not just taking forward the benefit, but you're also making sure that you're you're rectifying or addressing any areas of potential compliance risk um, in, in the negative accumulation half of the bucket. Yeah, great point. So, so Anna, uh, Chelsea's mentioned we, we, it's we're data heavy project. You know, we're talking about lots of 
uh, data that's going to be manipulated and, and pulled through. So that means you're working closely with your IT department. What, what was the approach to collaboration between the 340B pharmacy team and IS at your health system to make the switch? Yeah, so we um, work very closely, and we had the benefit of the TPA that we transitioned to. There were other, other entities in our system who have done that transition prior, and so we relied very heavily on our informatics pharmacist and our IT department and that aspect, so that made it um, much smoother having gone through that process before. Yeah, I found just going through this process myself on the provider side, you know, having a really good working relationship with IT, you know, having leadership over both IT and leadership over those that are responsible for the 340B program, kind of recognizing the the need to, you know, dedicate all the resources internally possible to to making the transition is really, really helpful for kind of moving through the project. As, as Rob, you mentioned, just a lot of work to get this all executed, especially if you're trying to accomplish this transition for, you know, multiple hospitals within a, a, a large organization. So you're going to spend lots of time sitting side by side with the uh, the IT department. How about how about other departments that you you worked with? Who who are some other key stakeholders, Anna, that you guys engaged when you you made the decision, hey, we're going to make the switch here. Who, who's all sitting at that table for the working meetings? Yeah, so we were we were very involved with billing, especially post go live prior because we um we ended up using um, or choosing to use the TPA software for um, Medicaid requirements for modifiers and actual acquisition costs. So uh, we worked very closely and we're still working very closely with billing to ensure that any potential issues or anything that we're fixing, they're aware of because it did affect the bottom line. And then we also worked really closely with the pharmacy department especially supporting the buying team and making sure that patient care is not affected through the whole transition. Great. Rob, Chell, any other groups we want to pull in maybe? I didn't think to add that into the first, you know, the first question or first discussion we had around what things you might think about when looking at different TPAs, but the ability to help manage duplicate discount prevention and have those Medicaid billing solutions within your TPA is certainly um, an element that I think goes into that TPA selection process. And it's it's one that clearly was a big part of, of the process and has been going through for, for the last couple of months and continues to be going through. Um, I think another thing, um, particularly if your 340B department or team sits, you know, not directly within your pharmacy department, working really closely with your pharmacy folks as well, making sure that the, the ordering processes are, are really nailed down for the new system. Um, and then making sure that any changes that might happen, especially in terms of, of budgeting and finances are clearly communicated and anticipated so that there are no surprises. If you do a clean slate, the potential for having that, that higher influx of WAC purchases um, and higher financial impact at the beginning is certainly there. There are also some TPAs that generate WAC accumulations, even though, um, so those are the utilizations that don't tie directly to a 340B or a GPO appropriate um, or eligible administration. And um, those TPAs will uh, drive purchases to 
um, to the WAC account, even where there are 340B and GPO accumulations available until those WAC accumulations have been depleted. Um, so generating additional WAC purchase um, while things are being ironed out from the billing and mapping perspective. So really just making sure that there's open lines of communication there and that everyone's on the same page in terms of what the processes will be, but also what um, impacts we may see in either kind of processes for the buyer or in financial impact for the first couple of months for the pharmacy department. The other item, I'll jump in there, the other item that um, we worked closely with billing and IT and pharmacy on is just determining like cutover dates. Um, so we chose to follow, um, kind of do a hybrid where we um, did a heavy audit of our high dollar accumulations and just transferred those and back up like dispensation label da uh, level data. And um, we just worked really closely to determine um, when we do our cutover with the data feeds and make sure that that falls and won't cause or won't cause any billing issues and that was especially um difficult when we um use software for repricing and adding our ud modifiers and actual inquisition costs and just determining that cutover data because you do lose access to your old tpa and you want to make sure that you get all your records returned and don't have any issues or don't have any missing uh, charges there. Yeah, that's a great, great point, especially as it relates to compliance, because you could get a HRSA audit notice at any point in time and, you know, the, the legacy data could potentially fall in the scope of your audit review. So you need to make sure you have a plan to, to access all that historical information. Yeah, and I like I like that hybrid model. We've used that a couple of times, too, when data is messy, but, you know, we don't want to give up some of these accumulations we know are legitimate and um so so we we do a little bit of auditing to make sure the ones we bring over are legitimate then we can get rid of the ex excess accumulations in other areas um you know you mentioned other departments i absolutely agree i think um billing should be involved because there's that billing component i, I like the idea of, of the pharmacy buyers for sure especially as they learn new processes for direct order um, compliance Right. We've been focusing on the triple split billing side or the split billing side, I should say, and, and how we get the data to flow so it can accumulate. But at the same time, on the decrementing side, you know, there's the the migrations we need for the wholesaler, the main wholesaler, mains wholesalers. But then we have all these direct order vendors that we we don't um, we may not have set up or that we don't have that are, don't have EDI feed. So what's the process um, for the, the from the old vendor to the new vendor for how we decrement those? Right. Just understanding all those things and making sure the buyer's involved and. And uh, with the, kind of all the same things. Um, the other one, though, I always, which maybe is a kind of no-brainer, but I also think finance, right? There could be a financial impact in those first few months of the transition. And so making sure that the CFO or wh whoever pharmacy reports is aware that we might see an increase in, in budget. So I think about it from the leadership standpoint that we might, you know, might get caught out in a, in a, in a budget meeting saying, hey, your, your pharmacy drug expense really shot up. If the last quarter and, and making sure that they're probably aware ahead of time that this will occur with any transition um, as you have a little more whack up front as you're trying to uh, catch back up on those accumulations. I think that's important to communicate to the right and necessary groups within the hospital. Yeah. Rob, what's your thought on investing in project management resource for, for this kind of work? 
Oh, huge. Um, I, I think you really do as an organization need to look at if you have project management and if you don't, finding someone who has that skill set. Because yeah. I think that's the one thing that that will keep every, you know, keep all the balls on there. There's so many balls from the data feeds to to the the review of crosswalks to um, you know, EDI feeds from from wholesalers and vendors and everything going on, possibly feeds from your pharmacy inventory system, if you're using like an Omnicell or a BD or something like that, all these things have to be integrated. And you really need a project manager that's going to look at all those things, put them on a, you know, whether there's a spreadsheet or a project management tool and really make sure that someone's assigned, that there's progress being made and then any bottlenecks are being taken care of. Otherwise, um, you know, one of, one of our friends who's been on the pod um, has been part of an organization where they were in literally a three plus year implementation uh, which was a absolute nightmare. So I won't mention any names to uh, <laughs> to preserve the an- anonymity. Okay, whatever other you say that. Um, and uh, but but that's a long time to be trying to figure out how do you buy correctly as a dish hospital. So um, so I, I think a project manager, if you don't have one, is huge uh, for the success of the implementation. Yeah, I mean, there's so many checkpoints through the process and, and folks that own the project at the provider level, it's the pharmacy folks that you've got to keep the lights on. You got, you've got patient care issues to take care of. You've got staff issues to address. You can't just, you know, suspend all of your other work to, you know, dedicate all your time to this, this big tech change, you know, so if you can offload some of that administrative work to a project management resource within your health system, man, w- what a huge relief and what a what a great asset to, to have access to. Anna, how about challenges? What, what were some of the big obstacles, unforeseen hurdles that you had to uh, navigate through the uh, the transition and the initial implementation of the new splitter? Yeah, we'll say we're still navigating through some of those. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the things that we definitely did not foresee after go live is um, our uh, wholesaler EDI feed did not um, transition appropriately on go live date, and that really affected our ordering. Um, and it, it passed during the testing phase, and so um, when on day of go live, when our buyers started placing orders, unfortunately, those ended up getting lost and not processed so we kind of had to do all hands on deck to um, ensure that orders are placed like on a on direct orders instead of going through the split billing software and doing like manual splitting while the edi feed was resolved and so from there i would just recommend that um, touch base with each party involved um, to make sure that they're set and they know um, what they're get or what they need to do and like the timeline of when that's going to happen. Um, other issues that we ran into um, was with our um, data feed files. And um, one of the recommendations there is even if your file, if your files pass through the testing phase, um, take the time post go live and validate everything. Um, initially things looked great, um, but we um, started doing uh, deeper dives and um, discovered some issues with our um, modifier process and some of our like Medicaid modifiers being or Medicare modifiers being stripped. So that's something that we're still working through um, that process and how to apply a fix to those. And that has caused a lot of manual work that um, I wish the I wish we knew about prior to work or look more into those issues. 
You know, Anna, when you when you came or when you gave your introduction, you said you've had the joy of not only going through HRSA audits, but also a number of EMR and TPA transitions. And from that, you have the ability to to be able to kind of pivot each time you go through this process again, using your, you know, hindsight 2020, you get to implement that next time. So what what have you done differently for this transition? that you didn't do the first time around. It sounds like, you know, some of the experiences you just shared are are things that you're kind of keeping notes of. Here's what you do differently the next time you do it. But what did you do differently this time around that you kind of learned from going through past experiences? Yeah, um, one of the things that we try to do a big focus on is training. And with five hospitals, there's a lot of buyers. There's a lot of analysts involved. And so we tried to start training early and make sure that everyone was comfortable with the software and with what they needed to do um, with GoLive so that it wouldn't affect uh, pharmacy processes as much as possible. And the other thing that uh, we tried to do is having more pointed meetings with um, and like establishing timelines with all um, key players. So we would meet um, bi-weekly and then um, closer to go live, we would increase those meetings and just do double checks with everyone involved. The one thing I would add to that is going forward is add the wholesaler to that, to those meetings. Yeah, great. Rob, Chelsea, anything that you guys have seen out in practice as far as obstacles or or lessons learned that we would want to share as a a tip for other covered entities that are going to go through this? I'll, I'll, I'll share one um, <clears throat> that we've seen kind of play out a couple of times is that when you switch vendors, sometimes their qualification processes for what's 340B versus GPO or inpatient versus outpatient qualified can be different. And, and so really paying attention to the data spec and what you're sending um, is, and, and I'll say that this way, sometimes we send data, you know, within the EHR, there's different ways you can pull the data or at different points you can pull the data. And so you really have to understand working with your IT team is when or which point in the patient's process are we pulling the data for these charges? And this is important because some vendors purely rely on the patient's status at the time the drug was charged or whatever it may be. And so that you, you your data abstract really has to pull that patient status correctly um, because sometimes you might pull it downstream where a, retrospect, a retrospective patient status change occurred. And maybe your policy is that you don't take those into account. And so if you pull it downstream, it would take those into account and that could affect your compliance. The other part is some vendors don't do it that way. Some vendors don't really use the patient status that's affixed to the actual drug charge data that was sent for any particular drug administration or charge. They'll look at the time that the drug is administered and then they'll use a separate ADT file, which is a admissions uh, discharge and transfer file. So just looking at a patient's movement throughout the health system or the hospital looking for inpatient and outpatient statuses based on that and then correlating the time. And so again, that's a that could be a different determination when it comes to changes that occur after the fact or um, if sometimes we see that there's multiple um, encounters and so does the TPA know which one to use if you're sending both, right? So I think really understanding how they qualify and understanding when or where you're pulling the data from from your system becomes critical because if you do that wrong, then you're going to validate, you're going to do all these things, and then maybe it's not a big issue for 95%, but 5% of your uh, accumulation is going to be off. 
So really understanding that upfront and then doing some testing of some all your patient locations and patient statuses to make sure it's accurate and doing a really nice representation of, of samples to make sure you don't have any issues up front before you turn this thing on and go months and then realize, oh my gosh, we're, we've been accumulating incorrectly. So, so I think just paying so much attention to that is critical. And then truly understanding how you're going to update the crosswalk. If you're not sending the NDC scan, right, if that's not your process or system, how is that crosswalk being updated? Is it different between the two TPAs, how they manage it? Does the TPA manager, or do you have to go and update the crosswalk on a regular yep. basis when you're adding your NDC? So I think knowing those two things, because I've seen those two things fail because the TPAs did it differently and the covered entity wasn't aware of that difference when they're implementing. Yep. One thing we noticed is um, verify um, what or what you're sending for your package size multiplier or your billing units per package. So one thing we notice is it could be different between TPAs and don't assume that you're going to be applying same exact multiplier between the two because the fields might be different. Yeah, and Anna, you're right. And we've even seen it where, you know, one one vendor has only one multiplier. I, I call it a fudge factor, right? It's it's really doing a fudge factor between how it's purchased and the quantity that it's purchased in and whatever that that number is versus how you bill for it. And that this multiplier that Anna's talking about is that fudge factor that you multiply your quantity you're sending by to get to a, rep a representative of what percent of a full package it is. And I agree, it can be different between TPAs. And I've even seen a couple of TPAs now that have two multipliers. They have a multiplier on the initial quantity and then they have a pack size multiplier. And, and I've never understood why we have basically two fudge factors because then I remember working in a health system, you had two different hospitals. One was using one it one way and the other one was using it a different way. So everything was just different and not yeah. necessarily bad, but we always recommend, hey, just pick one across your health system and be consistent with it. Um, otherwise, I think you do run into problems later if you're messing around with a TPA system that has two factors that you can adjust. So yeah, those factors can be, can be tricky to work with. Another area that I've seen um, be a challenge for organizations going through this, um, particularly for those that have both mixed use and clean sites, so 340 the only sites, is that when they go through um, and and start submitting eligible data again, or in the new system, they end up submitting clean site administration data into their mixed use accumulator without blocking those locations or blacklisting those locations. And they essentially, for a period of time, ended up double dipping you know, purchasing those medications in the, the clean site in the 340B only site prospectively on a 340B account, but then also generating new 340B accumulations as a result of those administrations. Um, so making sure that particularly if you have clean site locations, you're being really, really meticulous about sifting through those eligible location files and making sure that you're only qualifying um, claims from eligible locations that you intend to have in your mixed use universe. Yeah, that's a that's a great comment, Chelsea. And I've I've seen that in HRSA audits recently, where mixed use claims were targeted or sampled um, during an audit, and we, you know, in reviewing the samples, you realize, oh, this actually was, you know, purchased and procured out of a clean site environment. And yeah, I think you do run the potential risk for some diversion there if you're banking accumulations, but also buying for that particular product on a, on a clean site account. So, you know, a, a, a thorough review of the, not only the qualifying departments in your EHR, but the ones that should qualify for mixed use accumulations is key. I, I even suggest folks take a 
a step back from that and, and look at your processes. If there, you know, maybe there's an opportunity to kind of, you know, carve a different landscape. Maybe there are departments that had been supported on a clean site process that you want to fold into your uh, virtual inventory management process or, or vice versa. So use the, the actual transition to a new TPA to, you know, maybe establish more appropriate um, procurement processes for all the different areas where you're buying hospital administered drugs. All right. Um, let, let's talk about recommendations or suggestions. I know we've we've thrown out some different ideas, but Anna, we'll start with you. Any any one specific recommendation that you'd want to make sure covered entities that are listening take back to their teams if they're in the process or planning on going through a, a conversion like this? Yeah, I would say data validation, data validation prior and go lot to go live and data validation post go live. And I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but one of the other things would be validating your crosswalk, crosswalk mapping. I know that many TPAs provide the proposed crosswalk, um, and I would just validate those because different TPAs use different me methodologies. And then um, we've definitely seen a lot of discrepancies, especially between inner and outer and C mapping. So I would say take the time to validate that and take the time afterward to validate that everything is working like you're expecting it to be working, that you're getting all the charges you sent over back because sometimes you may have issues where things are being held up and you don't have insight to that from um, like the user interface. It's all about the data, right? Yeah, clean data gets you um, better compliance, right? Yeah, well, they say gar garbage in, garbage out. So I, I, yeah, I I think you're right. You got, it's got to commit to, you know, really validating all of your data uh, up front. Rob, Chelsea, any any other kind of highlights that we want to communicate I out just, to the, uh, the audience there? I would just echo what Anna said. I I like to do trust but verify. You you get all these reports ahead of time. You're looking at them. The data looks like what you expect it to look like. Um, but making sure that you're going back and verifying or validating each of those data elements to make sure you're pulling, you know, to what Rob spoke of before, the different places you can pull data from in the medical record, making sure that you're pulling exactly the data that you intend to be pulling um, and that it's being directed to 340B eligible or not 340B eligible, exactly how you expect it to be doing so. And, and the billing pieces that are in there making sure that the right claims are having modifiers and actual acquisition costs attached and if that's part of your process um, and then that the right costs are being assigned and things like that. So trusting the data that you're seeing, but really taking the time to do really in-depth audits of the data and validation of the data before going through that process and then in the weeks immediately following. Great. Rob, I got one last question for you from a leadership perspective as a pharmacy leader. How, how do you measure the success of, of an implementation or transition? What, what are you looking for as, uh, I guess, metrics or, or, you know, evidence that this was a successful project? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I definitely think one would be just, just the, you know, primary outcome, which is cost that we didn't see a significant increase in costs, that we were able to manage that so that it was a minimal. I don't know how you do a transition without possibly um, having some cost impact, um, but uh, that not being significant would be one. Um, also that we don't have downtime, right? That we, um, 
and I think this goes to your previous question, but had the right team in place to make sure that we were able to do the transition efficiently and in a timely manner, there's always going to be a little bit of a gap, but can we do it in a way that there's, we decrease the amount of downtime of having a TPA active? And if possible, there are ways to do it. So you have zero downtime, right? When you do the cutoff, um, you've already planned it off. So you end TPA one day and you start a new TPA the next day, and you might even go back in time a little bit um, with the data, just so you have the data flowing, but there's different ways to do that. So those are two things I would look at, but I I think it all boils down to having the right team. I think we talked about it at the beginning, making sure you put the right team together. I love your your comment about a project manager, having someone in charge of the project so they can kind of track all these things as part of their role. Um, and so I think all that, hopefully at the end, means that you successfully converted your TPAs and that you didn't see a lot of downtime and that you didn't see a huge financial impact. I think that to me would be successful. Awesome. Great. Well, Chelsea, thanks for joining us today. Anna, also, thank you for for bringing your perspective. We are so happy to have you guys on the podcast. Um, you know, Anna, good luck with the transition. I know it's a work in progress, but you guys have have done great work so far, and uh, you know, hope to talk to you in the future and and see how how everything's kind of shaked out for you. Thank you. All right, everyone. Well, that's going to be a wrap for this this week's episode. Uh, Thanks again for listening, and um, we'll talk to you soon. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.